0: Hey, I'm Chris.
1: And I'm Pat. We're friends, we live at opposite ends of the country, and we like horror movies. We also like Dave Matthews Band. Well, I like Dave Matthews Band.
0: Welcome to Slash Into Me.
1: Slash Into Me, the only podcast brave enough to merge these two cultural mainstays.
0: Each episode, we're going to discuss one of the great, and maybe not so great, franchise horror movies of history. And then talk about Dave Matthews' band. Right. It's simple, it's absurd, and we love doing it. It's Slash Into Me. Slash Into Me. And this is our first episode about the 1978 John Carpenter movie, Halloween. Let's indulge. So this is Slash Into Me. This is our podcast where uh as you heard we're going to meld horror movies and the Dave Matthews band. Why, you may ask? That's the question we're trying to answer. <laughs> Rather than ask why, I think why not, right?
1: <laughs> people have many interests. I mean, I work in in journalism and but it's it's music journalism specifically and people will often be like Cool. So, like, what what else are you into besides music? And I have other interests, but if I can quantify them by having a podcast about said interest, you know, everything is content. So, uh, I think that's that's just what it has to be. I have to prove to people that I have other interests by making a podcast about said other interests.
0: I think that's valid. I think also it's maybe could be viewed that it's irresponsible that no one's done it already, right? I mean, yeah, we're the only podcast brave enough to do it. There we go. So here it is. Uh, so John Carpenter, 1978 Halloween, obviously incredibly iconic, incredibly monumental as a piece of film, a piece of horror, but also just as a staple of pop culture.
1: The first movie is so legitimately good because it's like an indie movie that was shot for $300,000 and then it grossed like, I've heard different numbers, 47 million, 65 million, depending on what you're looking at.
0: Tens of millions for sure.
1: Yeah, and and it becomes this huge thing. Obviously, it spawns a whole like series. But I think if you were to be like, oh, that's one of my favorite movies, unless you were like a quote unquote horror person, I think that might be strange. But it's like if you watch it, it's legitimately brilliant, and it it, it makes sense when you think about like John Carpenter isn't. I don't know if he's like if he's like, considered an auteur or what in terms of like the film pantheon, but he definitely is incredible. He did the music. He had such a vision for this. He wrote it with. Deborah Hill, who produced it, who was, I believe, his girlfriend at the time. She was. And it's just like, you know, he had made two movies before this, I think two features before this. And then I think he did some TV movies as well. I try to watch it every Halloween season, starting a couple of years ago, I started doing this just because I do think it's incredible. But it, it does, but for that reason, it almost feels like it's just so pervasive in the culture that it seems weird to start there, but it also makes the most sense to start there because it kind of launched this whole slasher genre of film after that, and it set these weird rules that like weren't even necessarily meant to be rules by John Carpenter. If you have sex, then you die. If you party, you die, etc., that are kind of parodied later in Scream.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because it's like he didn't set the rules with the intent of I'm going to create this universe and everybody's going to follow what I do after this. He was just trying to make a cheap movie in 21 days. Right. And he accidentally changed it all. What's worth asking is, why is it good? Yeah. Because now, when you watch it uh, 40 years later, so much of what happens in that movie, you are familiar with it. You're familiar with the tropes of those things that it follows and the way that it moves as a piece of film. And so you're almost expecting the things that happen in it. But 40 years ago... You wouldn't have, or would you have? I mean, I think that's worth investigating. What made this thing so divisive, but also ultimately so successful?
1: Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, the producer who, and I don't know if he, I don't think he ended up working on the film, but a producer. Irwin
0: Yablans.
1: That's the guy. He He suggested this concept called the babysitter murders, which sounds like such a classic, like, It's funny because that's like a terrible film title, but also so is Halloween. Like it is, yeah.
0: (laughs) It's kind of like Friends.
1: Yes, it's it's like it's sort of a blank canvas that then you can end up creating kind of whatever movie you want. You have this concept of a person stalking young babysitters, probably high school age, and then eventually murdering them. That's like it. Like it works, and that's that's kind of what Halloween is. But, like, also, it's interesting that John Carpenter, when he was at USC in the late 60s, in 69, he made this film called Captain Voyeur. It's like an eight minute short, and he ended up essentially using a lot of the same elements for Halloween, which are that there's a Voyeur, there's someone who's looking at people, and he's following them. You don't know why necessarily, and then maybe he kills. I don't, I've not actually seen the film, but because I think it's kind of hard to
0: find. I met this six year old child with this. Blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil.
1: Michael is terrifying early on because he doesn't seem to be fa- like He goes back to his house after he kills his his older sister and then is institutionalized and escapes
0: who if I can jut in his older sister who was a former playboy playmate the actress
1: like when she was in Halloween she was a former playboy playmate
0: that's a good question I don't know the answer to that but at some point in her life either before or after she posed naked for playboy
1: well that's crazy also because the girl who Annie is supposed to be babysitting who she does babysit until she goes over she takes the girl over to the Doyle's place Lindsay is her name yeah it's kyle richards who is a real housewife of beverly hills
0: oh no way yeah wow all right continue though
1: the essential premise of the film there's not like really a grudge per se that is motivating michael myers to kill there's not even really too much of a reason except on the surface he's mentally ill but it's, it goes deeper than that it's kind of the character of loomis is meant to tell you he just is evil and this is just what he does so when he escapes and he goes back to Haddonfield, he just goes back to his house where the murders took place. Yeah. And the only reason that he ends up pursuing Jamie Lee Curtis and then the friends that she you know, eventually is seen with is because she just drops the key off at the Myers house. Like That's the only reason.
0: It's literally the only reason. Yeah. She's not... I mean, eventually there will be other reasons and they're bullshit and we'll talk about them in a future episode. But in the real thing, in episode one of this saga... That is the only reason is because there was a scene where she dropped a key off under the mat. And
1: then the whole thing goes from there and she's pursued by this voyeur and then we have the film Halloween, which actually so much of it takes place in the daytime that I actually love it. Like, I think I remember being a kid and watching it and being like, oh, this is so stupid. Like it's daytime still, but it's actually like, it's really hard to be scary in the daytime. And I think so many films try to use the, in the cover of darkness and night as a mask because it's just obviously, or like a rainstorm and stuff like that. Like those are kind of the tropes. Yeah. Um, but so much of this film takes place in the daytime. It's kind of dusk-ish or like pre-dusk, which is also crazy because it's definitely not like that in Illinois in late October. But it was filmed in California, so there you go.
0: Yeah, no, it's crazy. It, I think, you know, that just kind of speaks to Carpenter his ability to take something as seemingly innocent as just the fall of night and use it as such a device. You know, he turns night into this harbinger of things. And of course, there's precedence for that, like in literature and in even in early movies and things. But you're right, like so much of it takes place during the day that once it becomes night, it automatically builds tension that yes. may not otherwise be there without something on a more expensive film set causing it to be there look. Look where? Behind the bush. I don't see anything. guy drove by so fast that when you yelled at? Oh, settle, isn't he?
1: What do you think about, I had a classmate in grad school who, he grew up in Chicago, in the city, and he was explaining to me, we were driving through kind of a rural area in Syracuse. I don't remember why, but he was like, this kind of stuff freaks me out like he just kind of pointed gestured around and about like the rural area and i was like why and he said because i grew up in the city like it's really weird to me to be in the middle of nowhere it makes me feel that he you know not at ease and it's creepy and it reminds me of halloween like i just the suburbs in halloween and that kind of like emptiness is really spooky to me and i've been thinking about that and i was rethinking about that when i watched the film and I wanted to know your thoughts on that. Do you agree with that? I know we were both kind of raised in suburban areas, but like, do you think that the suburbs in this film act as any kind of significant place where the terror is happening?
0: Maybe it's not necessarily as spooky of a place as say something as stereotypical as like a graveyard or you know a cemetery or a haunted house.
1: Right which in this film does have elements of some of those things too.
0: for sure, certainly. But I think the thing that's inherently scary about the small town, is the intimacy between the neighbors and the family and friends. You know, so much of the movie takes place in two houses that are across the street from each other. And there's that famous scene where, you know, she opens the door and he's standing across the street kind of in the bluish light. You know, the idea that you can watch it and you can think about the next door neighbor that you grew up with and you can imagine this happening in your neighborhood like you said like we're both from the suburbs we're both used to trick-or-treating and Halloween and like cruising around at night and it's like it just feels very real and it feels very possible even like Psycho I mean you know so many people draw comparison between Halloween and Psycho and they are incredibly similar and it was a huge inspiration but as a viewer, I don't feel like the events of Psycho could as easily happen to me. Yes. A younger viewer, anyway. Yeah. So that's scary as hell. I mean...
1: Yeah, and like in Psycho, you have a person who is essentially on the run, because it's implied that, like, well, there's a mystery of the past, etc. Whereas in Halloween, Laurie, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, is just this... She doesn't have too much of a backstory. She's just like a kind of bookish high school student. She's got friends who are, like, kind of uh, more adventurous and also kind of legitimately mean to her 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 friend annie is is like so mean to her it's crazy
0: oh she sucks
1: yeah she, <laughs> she does and I, I think there's probably like some weird enjoyment when she actually does get killed for some people because they're like oh yeah finally that girl was so annoying which i think also speaks to some of the perhaps like perceived potential misogyny that maybe would come into play in this genre of slasher film later on but then also it's like you know there's people who are like oh but there's always like a final girl and she's always the one who usually takes the the killer down the killer who's always a man but like you know is it i think there are a lot of questions to be asked there too like is it misogynist i don't know
0: yeah i mean carpenter and hill have always said there's no underlying themes of michael subconsciously like killing because of his disapproval of promiscuity or like the female personas in the movie they've always denied that but it does seem prevalent a little bit for sure
1: especially because he kills his sister after he basically witnesses her like having sex or about to or right after
0: yeah yeah i mean that scene is incredible both cinematically and just it's wonderful to watch but like that's what sets the stage for it i've never gotten angry after watching someone have sex but michael does that's true I
1: don't think, I don't, I'm going to say definitively that that's true for me too. Yeah, I'm just going to say it here. I think that that's probably true for me as well.
0: (laughs) To back up, you mentioned that Laurie is pretty bookish and kind of a nerd. For as good as the movie is, and as much as I just want to slob all over it, there are moments where it's kind of ridiculous because it's a cheap movie from the, you know, late 70s. And one of those moments is when she's in English class and they're talking about two different authors these dueling ideas of fates and she gives this answer i don't have the quote in front of me but she gives a, an answer to her english teacher that is far too good for a high school english student
1: especially because she was just looking out the window moments before that and clearly not even like paying attention to what the answer should be which is absurd
0: right which i guess is meant to mean she's incredibly smart but Nobody's that smart not when they're 17 or I don't even know how old she's supposed to be but she's in high school So
1: yeah, it's probably it could be anywhere from like 15 to 17.
0: Probably I would they're say. driving around I guess Yeah, that's true uh, And also when they're driving around they're listening to don't fear the reaper I don't know like at that point that song must have been pretty popular Would it not have been expensive to put that in the film? Yeah, I thought that too
1: actually because most of the movie is scored by just carpenter's own really creepy and now iconic score and all those different little cues that are kind of repurposed and used in different spots and then all of a sudden yeah it's like don't fear the reaper it reminded me of um in in (laughs) other in movies like scream and like maybe i know what you did last summer maybe they have like kind of a spooky opening or something but then it usually kind of like there's like a fade out and then like a fade into a daytime scene maybe where they're all at school doing something that's like yeah we're going about our lives there's always some like you know depending on the era but like some song that's like really upbeat and Are you afraid of the dark? I think did this so much too. It could be like there would always those episodes. Yeah, like they'd always be prefaced with like this really spooky introduction. Oh yeah. And then they would throw the whatever the crap was on the fire to make it like sizzle. They'd say the name of the tale. It you'd be like, oh, okay, this is gonna be really scary. And then it would be like. Russ Jenkins was a a pretty normal kid and then like there'd be some absurd exposition yeah I like this film doesn't have that but the don't fear the reaper part kind of reminded me of that where you're reminded that there is an outside world and that exists outside of this film those moments are always really funny because sometimes they're jarring sometimes they take you out sometimes they're just kind of cute and funny
0: right hi dad What happened? What? What happened? Oh, uh, somebody broke into the hardware store, probably kids. You blame everything on kids. Well, now, all they took was some Halloween masks, a rope, and a couple of knives. Who do you think it was? It's hard growing up with a cynical father. Aren't you going to be late? Huh? I said, aren't you going to be late? He shouts, too.
1: Annie and Lori are smoking pot in the car. On the way to go babysit, and pull was, up
0: to Annie's father, who is the town cop.
1: Yeah, like the one cop, apparently. Yeah,
0: <laughs> he's definitely one of my favorite characters because I feel like he's such a just a prototype for that period. Like, there's something about him that kind of reminds me of Jack Nicholson from The Shining. His acting isn't nearly as good, you know. Like, he walks up to Laurie on the street and he's like, "Everyone's entitled to a good scare," and he he has <laughs> kind of has that same <laughs> cadence that haircut and those sideburns like he's so you love him but you're terrified of him you wouldn't want him to catch you smoking pot basically
1: yeah and he, and he doesn't even get to find out we don't get to see him find out that his daughter's been strangled to death in the car and have her throat slit or whatever like he we don't get to see that moment which because if we if they showed it it would be some cheesy scene or you know he screams like no or whatever and then <laughs> like
0: god damn you michael yeah i mean those are kind of the things that carpenter was able to omit and that makes it so good it also helps to make it a bit timeless 'Cause those are the things that put it in a period, right? That kind of over the top dramatic acting that is just meant to I don't really know what it's meant to do, but it's in a lot of films from that time and it's like it's interesting that you don't get more of that from Pleasance, who plays Loomis, because he you know, at that point he's like old Hollywood. He is right. If you look at his IMDb page, he probably has a good 45 entries before halloween it's crazy oh, yeah. and he's yeah. in weird movies he's in like old like 50s and 60s like space kind of horror movies where he's like battling insects and like weird stuff
1: the kind of stuff that, that tommy and Lindsay are watching on tv while being babysat like the thing the, these kind of like old timey, yeah which is the thing which carpenter would later do
0: I mean, you do get a little bit of that cheese from Pleasance, like some of his monologues are, they're iconic, but they are, I don't know, the delivery is good, and it's, you know, well constructed, but it's a little, almost like you're watching a play instead of watching a movie. He just doesn't feel like he fits in with everybody else on screen, which I think helps to build his character and makes him such an important part of the film, but like, it is a bit strange to watch for sure
1: and the yeah and like we'll i think we'll get into this eventually but the fact that his role is expanded in the sequel is i think makes that even more clear where you're like oh yeah this guy he's he's that guy in friday the 13th there is crazy ralph who's like
0: you're all doomed
1: which is (laughs) incredible and loomis is essentially that guy um, but an actual character—he's actually developed. He is able to bring with him and wear on his face this sense that like things are very bad. But at the same time, I like how he's when he's driving to Haddonfield, he is on the phone. He stops at a, like a very rural payphone that is very clearly California Desert Road, which is hilarious because it's supposed to be Illinois, right? With mountains yeah. in the background. <laughs> with mountains in the Midwest.
0: I have never seen mountains in Illinois.
1: And so he stops at the payphone, and he's he's like urging the people and i don't remember if he's calling if he's oh he, i think he's calling the police in Haddonfield. and he's telling them he's coming he's on his way and then the person is clearly not listening and he kind of just nonchalantly says like well if you don't listen it's your funeral and then he hangs up and i was like <laughs> that part has always just made me laugh cuz i'm like right it's it's pretty urgent for this guy but also he's he just is very cavalier about that one part which i like that moments like that are also like very i'm very fond of it i wanted to ask you what is your favorite moment of this film oh man that's not my favorite but what is your favorite moment
0: i actually love the scene in the beginning where michael myers steals the van oh yeah yeah i remember when i first watched the movie which was a very long time ago i think i was like 10 um i was confused because when they were driving in the rainstorm and talking about you know him as a boy and him in the mental institution i thought that he was in the van and that they were taking him somewhere else. And then someone jumped on the van and started like breaking in the windows. And I was like, who's this guy? Like, this guy's even crazier. But it turns out it was him. Like, I just totally misunderstood. I don't know. I think that scene is done pretty well. Like, it's it's creepy. Like, it's a good use of night. And, you know, it's rain. It's a rainstorm, which is classic. Um, but it works. And, you know, they pull up, and they're just in this field, and there's all these people roaming around in white jackets in the rain. Like, that's... That's creepy. And you don't see them much, but just less is more so much in this film. And that's one of those scenes where I feel like you kind of see them. They just look like cows almost in the field, like they're grazing. They don't do anything particularly weird. It's not like they're out there like sharpening knives or like licking human bones or something, but they're just out there, which is wrong. And then the chaos ensues and the van gets stolen. And it's like another instance of women kind of being helpless and she just sort of like cowers and then lets him take the van. And he's, she's like, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, like, and he's like, God damn you. woman!" <laughs> right. but like, I still like it. I think it's a good scene. Yeah. That's I, I love that
1: scene. That's a good call. Cause the, the colors in that scene are primarily black and white. Like you said, the white coats and the, the smocks or the tunics, whatever these, these institutionalized people kind of roaming, like you said, like cows. And then there's the red of the brake lights, that illuminate they're kind of red orange that illuminate Michael as he like jumps on top of the car and then eventually when he he escapes with the car.
0: Why do they do it? Goddamn kids. They'd do anything for Halloween. Was great, oh, I know. 1819. Judith Myers. He
1: came home. As I was watching it, I ended up taking many screenshots of just the first flashes of Michael when he is masked that are all from a distance. When Lori's in class, he's outside the window, he's hiding behind the car. You like don't even realize what you're looking at at first because it's such a distant shot, it's such a far shot. Then there's the same thing when he's standing at the end of the hedgerow when Laurie and Annie are walking. Then he like pops in and then he disappears. When Lori goes Back to her place, and she's a little spooked already. And she sees him standing in the the linens with the laundry.
0: Oh, that honestly, that probably is the best. It's scene. just
1: yeah, it's it's so. But then, so what I love about that scene is so there's a shot of her looking out her window, presumably looking at him in these linens as the wind is blowing. But then when the when the the next shot is of her still looking at it, and then when we when we uh, flip back to her perspective and see what what she's looking at. He is gone, but we never see her look away. So it kind of feels like that one may be just a hallucination or like a fear image. We don't actually know if that one's real or if it's not.
0: There's no reason why she would have looked away. I mean, I guess I could see that like if you see something that freaks you out, you stop looking at it, but then curiosity and fear makes you look again I I do that I kind of did that after I watched the movie I watched it alone in the dark in my apartment me too yeah it's the perfect way to watch it multiple times many multiple times I've seen this movie and still like before I went to bed I kind of had to like trail lights through my apartment like I couldn't walk all the way to my bed in the dark it's a scary movie it's good it does it well
1: it's really creepy and the reason I think that michael is so scary at first is because the voyeur shots and the pov shots from michael's pov when he's outside the school um and he's kind of trailing tommy doyle like that is those are definitely scary and when he's kind of in the car driving those are scary but the kind of when it switches to laurie's pov and and then you only see him from a distance like i think that to me is like is really scary there was a really great essay a visual essay on the website the outline recently um by this guy sean t collins who's a journalist he's a critic and he basically the the essay is on the outline it's called all hail the monumental horror image and he basically uses scenes from the shining like the twins at the end of the hallway the demon pazuzu statue from the exorcist and that that same like the uh, samara climbing out of the well in the ring and then many others like it but including the the first two shots of michael myers with the mask which is the one where he's or actually, I don't see uh, that one where he's in the car, but definitely the one where he's at the end of the hedgerow. Like that one is so iconic and it's so terrifying because he's. It's it's the kind of going back to the suburbs thing. Like you look at that shot, which is just a suburban street. It's very green. There are trees. There's a hedgerow. There's houses. Everything's very neat and squared off and cordoned, and it has its own place. And whatever this thing is that you're looking at, you don't know what it is. His face doesn't have features but it's white, it's, you can tell it's not a skin, but it looks kind of like a face, and you just know that it doesn't belong there. And I think like that is what ends up making it so uh, horrifying and so spooky, and that's, I think, the stuff that really lingers with you, so.
0: See anything you like? <laughs> What's the matter, can I get your ghost, Bob? All right, right, come on, where's my beer? Well, can't you answer me?
1: You would say we should talk about what the best kills are. I have a very specific answer, but I want to know what yours is first.
0: I mean, the most famous kill is certainly Bob. Yeah. It probably is the best kill. It's executed really well. I kind of love everything to do with Bob, and this is off track. So before we talk about the best (laughs) kills, I want to talk about Bob for a second. Bob is probably my favorite character because every time he's on screen, I just love every minute of it. Yeah. Like from the point where he's just like wildly driving drunk to when he gets killed. I don't know if you caught this, but there was a scene where Bob and Linda go into the house. They discover that it's empty so they can totally bang. And I think she says like, why don't you take my clothes off? Can you do that? Or, you know, like she's like, just like drunkenly, kind of like flirting with him, and he's like, "I get it. Like I take your clothes off, you take my clothes off, and then I take Lori's clothes off." Which is an amazing moment because he just makes this, like, this aside joke that's quietly about pedophilia because Lori's like seven years old. <laughs> it's it's Lindsay. Oh man, I screwed it up. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that weird?
1: Oh yeah, it, it's definitely a pedophilia joke for sure and it, it made me feel like well maybe it was okay that Bob got slashed in the heart or rather stabbed through the heart. Now another thing that's interesting is that who PJ Souls is who plays Linda and she was in the film Carrie
0: yeah, which came out first, right It
1: did yeah, so I always I thought that there was definitely some intentionality in her casting. I mean, it's like here you have one horror film. She's gonna be another horror film because at that point, Jamie Lee Curtis is a complete unknown. This is like one of her very first roles, and it's, it was
0: her first movie.
1: Yeah, and it's the one that definitely ensures her career as she has it even to this day. So, but she's not bankable at that point. So at least it, you know the film gives you some cred, or the film gets some cred if uh, you cast PJ Souls as Linda, who had been in Carrie, and then if you kill her off too, it's like, oh, cool, yeah, she's you know here she was. She was under the covers with Bob, and then now she's dead, so.
0: Yeah, she, like, makes way for the next generation. And, like, Jamie Lee Curtis absolutely outshines her as an actress. Yeah. Linda sucks. I mean. She
1: sucks, but she doesn't suck as much as Annie.
0: That's true. That's true. I don't know. Best Kills. I I think I would have to say Annie because Annie is bothersome. Like, her character is a little tedious to deal with. And she is, like, negligent. She's, like, a shitty babysitter, and she's kind of a shitty friend, and she seems like kind of, in general, just a shitty person. And so it's one of the most satisfying kills. It's sort of like Michael Myers takes on this Satan persona of, like, Paradise Lost, where he is evil, but he becomes the protagonist in a sense. At a certain point, even though you're scared of him, you're kind of rooting for him, but you don't know why. And I think she's a good example of that. And she's the first kill, isn't she? So
1: there, this is interesting because there's really only, there are only five kills in the movie. Michael commits all of them. Right. Yeah, we, but we only see four because we don't see the truck driver whose uniform and, and uh, car he steals. Or he doesn't steal the car. He steals the uniform. We don't see that, though. We just see, his, we just see Loomis discover his dead body. But technically, there's five because there's, yeah, there's Judith Myers, his sister. There's the truck driver and then Annie. And then there's Linda and Bob. And those are the only five. But yeah, she's the first of the people in Haddonfield that he actually comes back. And it's crazy because, again, not to get too ahead of ourselves, but in the second movie, there's, there's definitely more... Characters who get introduced just so that they can be killed. And that is obviously something that happens throughout the whole slasher genre. But in Halloween, they all feel pretty intentional. You, I think you feel them more because you actually spent time with the characters. But I know you said that it's it, the, the, the classic answer is to say Bob because it's probably the most iconic. But I, it is just my favorite because Linda's death is almost a little ridiculous. Like it's definitely scary and it's it's disturbing. But yeah, getting, getting strangled by a telephone cord while you're on the phone with your friend who is mistaking your like dying sounds for like a potential orgasm is <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah it's a little cheesy i feel like it speaks to lack of knowledge of an orgasm i think
1: that that's completely true and yeah for sure and it it's, it's just a little i don't know it's not like hackneyed but but that one annie's is also good at, but i think bob's is is just so creepy because he's in this darkened house. You know, that's when like his kill in particular is, I think why like Michael Myers gets earned to be called the shape in the end credits, because he's, you, you see his face, you see these outlines at different parts of the movie, but in the kitchen, he does the classic head cock after he kind of pins Bob to the wall with the knife. And I think in that moment, like there's that moment and there's the moment where Michael picks up the phone after he's killed Linda that are kind of these, like, oddly, he has these, like, pseudo-human moments that are definitely, it's kind of an uncanny valley situation, because you're like, oh, he's doing, like, human-ish things, but we, for this whole film, he's not really behaved like a regular human, so I really like that little head cock, I think it just makes it, and that was one of the screenshots I took, To I have, like, this whole folder, I just keep looking at these photos, and they're all, like, so spooky and great, I don't know, I'm like, I guess I'll make them a collage and make them my desktop background or something.
0: (laughs) As one does in 1992. John Carpenter (laughs) made him do that. Nick Castle was the guy who most of the time played Michael Myers. He was in the suit and in the mask. And he was not an actor. Like he was just a friend of Carpenter's. And they were like, well, hey, man, do you want I think he made like $20 a day, 25 bucks a day or something like he was making nothing. And he didn't know like, he didn't really know how to do anything or become a character he obviously didn't have lines he just kind of had to saunter around I've, i watched an interview where he was like yeah i could realize that this was a really big scene even though bob wasn't like a terribly important character this kill was going to set the pace for the rest of the movie and i needed him to do something and the first thing that came to my head was just like when a dog looks at something it cocks its head when it's curious right so much of the movie uh loomis has set up michael myers as not a human being he refers to it as it or like the evil you know he doesn't call it a boy or a man and i think you know that subtly just sort of supports that like he's more animalistic than he is human which is why it works so well
1: yeah totally and the guy who plays so that was nick castle who plays the shape now the guy who plays the unmasked michael myers is tony moran who is the older brother of aaron moran of Happy Days and Joni Loves Chachi fade, uh, fame, rather. Yeah. <laughs> is that true? That is true. And yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. Now, I don't know why. Do you know why they picked him? Because I don't.
0: I do. They picked him. So Castle had been in the suit the whole time. And Carpenter knew that he needed this moment where the person or where Myers gets unmasked because he felt like that would be playing with the audience like is this a person is this someone we should relate to is this just a monster but it's not it's a you know just a human who had this weird sort of troubled life and he wanted the person's face to be quote angelic and he felt like nick castle Hmm. just looked like a goofy guy and i guess he was like famously very goofy around the set They found it difficult to be scared of him because they knew it was Nick Castle under it and he was just like, hey, it's me, I'm Nick.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's like the classic photo of he's got the Michael Myers mask on but he's flipped it onto his head so you can see his actual face but he's got a can of Dr. Pepper and he's like making the mask drink (laughs) it, and it's like, you can just see him being like,
0: "Hey guys." Yeah, yeah. He's like a real, he's a real goofy guy. But yeah, John Carpenter found this guy and he was like, his face is angelic. So... That was it, but I don't think his face is angelic. I think he's strange to look at.
1: Yeah, well, you only see it for a quick second, so it's it's hard to. And also, he's got the makeup over his eye because moments before that happened, Lori like sticks a clothes hanger into his eye and kind of pokes his eye out.
0: <laughs> yeah, he does kind of have like Mister Big Head eyes from Rocco's Modern Life. He do- he They're does kind of, like bulging out of his head. He looks like a weird sort of frog man. Yeah, he's got like nice lips. I guess you see his lips. I don't know.
1: He's got good features. He's like a good looking cat. Yeah. It's probably a really good idea now to transition to. The second part of every show, every episode that we do, which is to figure out which Dave Matthews Band's song is the most germane to talking about this film that we're talking about.
0: Yeah, and it's a little cheap on this one. That's true. I think this episode is going to be strange all around because I think when we set out to do this as a thing, we expected it to be over the top and ridiculous and just like in the realm of the absurd and we started out with a movie that is wholly almost entirely not absurd and just a wonderful movie and a song that is a perfect match for (laughs) it
1: however the song is absurd we can agree on that
0: oh it's definitely a crazy song i mean before we do that why don't you talk for a second about you and dave matthews where, do, where does Dave Matthews fall in your life?
1: So I went to my first Dave concert when I was almost 14 on July 13th, 2004. I saw Dave, uh, how many times? Seven times in the next five years after that. Four years, or no, five years after that. At various points around New York State, um, usually in Western New York, but sometimes in the eastern portion near Saratoga as well. And, you know, um, I was definitely into other bands, but I think... It's just kind of, there's like this ritualistic quality to seeing DMB every summer. It was a thing that my older brother did and his friends did and then kind of got passed down to me. Yeah, I I stopped. I haven't been to a Dave show since 2009, so I'm a little out of the loop in terms of what the live show sounds like now, but I am pretty well versed in their history, especially in the 90s history, and that's why I feel very qualified to bring up that... There is a Dave Matthews band song called Halloween that actually dates back pretty far. It was released on the 1998 album, Before These Crowded Streets. It's Dave's third album. It was the, DMB, uh, the first DMB album to go to number one, uh, a trend that every subsequent... It's your favorite Dave album. Oh, yes. It's my favorite Dave album for sure. And it was the first Dave album to go to number one, and that set up a trend that continues as recently as the most recent Dave album that just came out earlier this summer called Come Tomorrow... That makes a total of seven DMB albums to debut at number one on the Billboard uh, charts, which is a record that they only share with, I believe, Eminem and Kanye West. Maybe it's Beyonce. I need to double check on that.
0: I don't know. That's a good question. And I will say about Come Tomorrow, I think it's bad. I think it is objectively (laughs) bad, that music.
1: Well, some of the songs date back to like 2006. I
0: I don't like... You know what? I do... I I like the single, Samurai poke Bowl or whatever it's
1: called it's called it's called samurai cop yeah. right
0: but it has a parentheses. So which is not about um it's not about annie's dad the
1: the town sheriff of haddonfield illinois
0: Yeah, there's like a there is a thing about being young and listening to Dave Matthews. I had a very dissimilar start with them. I did not have family members or friends who were into them. I sort of discovered them on my own. Uh, I was like 12, maybe 11 or 12 years old, and I was very much in the tradition of going to the local library and burning CDs that I checked out. And I had heard of the Dave Matthews Band because my neighbor in my like very haddington illinois suburb that i lived in his name was eric and he juggled things and he listened to dave matthews that's what people knew about him
1: he was a juggler and he was a dmb fan he was
0: a jugglist yeah and he uh, he would juggle like bowling pins and like machetes he just like juggled i don't know and like i think i was 12 and i thought he was awesome looking back i think he was a real weirdo but he loved Dave Matthews, and so I'd heard of Dave Matthews, and I checked out a CD, which was listener-supported, which is their maybe first live album, maybe not. That, to me, is kind of the pinnacle of like where Dave lies. Getting ready for this podcast, I've listened to more Dave than I have in a very long time, and having listened to that album and then others, both live and studio, that stands out as just a perfected piece of work, and then everything else has ups and downs for me. Yeah, you definitely
1: kind of have to buy. It's kind of like new metal in the way that like you have to buy into what it is in order to get any kind of anything out of it, even if it's just like enjoyment. It doesn't have to be super deep or whatever. But you kind of have to take it for what it is. You have to take it for the fact that Dave Matthews himself has kind of a goofy singing voice. He's usually singing about sex. He's
0: always singing about sex. He's like the antithesis to Michael Myers. Okay,
1: he well yeah, because he fucks and Michael Myers doesn't <laughs> fuck. He fucks with his knife only. It's
0: not just that he fucks, it's that he he celebrates it. And Michael Myers kills over it.
1: That's true. There's also some DMB songs that are about apartheid. There's some that are about the plight of Native Americans. You know, I don't know where Michael Myers fits into that situation. But I do know. <laughs> I do know that the song Halloween, which is featured on the Before These Crowded Streets album 1998. Um, That was the studio release. It's actually a much older song than that. It dates back to the early 90s. But that song actually has more in common with Michael Myers than just the name Halloween because Dave Matthews apparently wrote it, and this might be apocryphal, but it it does seem to be accepted within the fan communities. Dave Matthews in the early 90s was in love with this woman uh, named Julia Gray. And he wrote some of his first songs about her. They were love songs. There was a song called I'll Back You Up. Now he apparently proposed to her three different times and she said no all three times. This apparently sent Dave uh, into a spiral of madness in which he wrote this song Halloween, which is a lunatic's rant of a song. I mean, it, it's...
0: <laughs> it's absolute insanity. It's
1: insanity. It's, it's definitely spooky. The, the album version is, is definitely spooky because they added the Kronos uh, quartet, the string players, to just do all sorts of spooky stuff near the end of it. Um, they kind of throw in weird studio trickery as well. Um, the lyrics are not super discernible. It's kind of Dave just grunting and um, exhaling a lot of rage. But he does say Halloween at one point, which is, I mean, there it is.
0: One might say he bellows it. Yeah,
1: that's true. but And it does lead into the next song on the album, which is called The Stone, which is about death and, and gravestones, and it's also very dark. So I would posit that much like the film Halloween, which deals in death and darkness, the song deals in heartbreak. And if, we, if you look at the maniac Dave uh, as a Michael Myers figure, metaphorically stabbing his uh, shirtless sister um, because of his being rejected of love, then that could potentially have some overlap a- a- as he is dealing with the fallout of these feelings. Uh, and maybe every man is a monster. Maybe Michael Myers is really inside of us. And it's like that Sufjan song about John Wayne Gacy, where at the end he's like, I'm basically as bad as him, you know, which is also absurd. But that's kind of the how that song ends. And I think if, if one has a podcast called Slash Into Me, these are the kinds of things you have to say to make the premise hold together.
0: Yeah, Jesus, man. I mean, this is basically a college class now. I think it should be. I think we could propose it to many universities and they may pick it up. I think, you know, just going back to the beginning of this show, it's just absolutely irresponsible that nobody's had this discussion before. And I think that proves it. And, uh... Enough said. You know, I think we closed the book on it here. <laughs> Halloween 1 over Dave Matthews Band 1, Halloween 1, everybody else 0, and us 2. If that's how scoring works. Not a big sports fan. There <laughs> <laughs> we go.
1: Guys, if you like this episode... Check us out. We're on Instagram and Twitter at slash into me
0: Uh, slash into me at gmail.com.
1: Send us an email and don't forget to follow us on SoundCloud and subscribe to the pod and tell your friends wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: How about in the most fitting way that I can imagine? Let's end this episode by just leaning into our microphones and breathing eerily. And we'll just fade out our breathing as if it's the end of the movie Halloween. Okay. That sounds great. All right. 3, 2, 1...
1: Anyway, that's it for us.